And here we have a story that stands out of a young man who's willing to work to take his wife's hand in marriage. Why? Because he loves her. He's willing to waver. It's the first true love waits in human history. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. standing as we pray. Our gracious Father, we glorify and as a community stand this morning in awe of you. You rule over the nations and you rule and reign in our hearts this morning. One day your enemies will lay defeated just as death has been rendered powerless. And until that day, we eagerly open your word every single day, but especially on the Lord's Day, to be equipped for every good work. And that good work includes declaring your law, proclaiming your glorious gospel, cherishing your Christ, and submitting our lives to your ways. So Father, merciful Father, we're asking that you'd speak truth, for we, your servants, are intent to receive from your word this morning. It's for your grace and for your glory that we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. And all who agree together say, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? The grace of God. God's unmerited favor. Or as some have said, God's riches at Christ's expense. His common grace, which all mankind, whether sinner or saint, enjoys common grace, the expression of his goodness and mercy in every favor falling short of salvation, including the delay of his wrath, the restraining of evil, the occurrence of natural events that lead to human flourishing, and all the gifts that humans use and enjoy in their unbelieving state. The sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, God's common grace. On judgment day, All those who are unrepentant, who have failed to thank God for his common grace, they will experience the just reward for their condemnation. Common grace is, of course, distinct from God's saving grace or his special grace, which is reserved for his people. That particular work of God, who by the Spirit calls us, regenerates us, justifies us, and sanctifies us, you and I, who were dead in trespasses and sins, but made alive by God as an act of his saving grace. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God in your life? I'm not gonna sing it as good as Micah, but grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace that is greater than all our sin. Now, Aren't you glad for the discipline of God? Didn't get as many amens on that one. The discipline of God, the loving fatherly chasing of his beloved children in order to correct disobedience as well as to teach us, to conform us into the image of his son, to rebuke the wandering of his people and also to order our lives in obedience to his law. Who here is also thankful for the discipline of God. The title of our sermon today could simply be Laban's Deception, but if we're ambitious, we could 
use this as a sermon title, The Grace and Discipline of God for the Growth of His People. That's going to be a very long URL for our podcast, but that is the title of the sermon this morning. And in Genesis 29, we read about the circumstances in which both the grace of God as well as the discipline of God are going to help form and develop Jacob's character as the deceiver is himself deceived. God is going to cause Jacob to grow, to mature, to become more like the gracious and good God who has promised to be with him the rest of his days. So as we open this chapter, we pick up where we left off last week in Genesis 28. And if you're new to our church, we teach the Bible in exposition, verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. And if you were here last week, you can recall that we studied the heel-catching younger brother, the twin of Esau, known as Jacob, we learned that he secured the birthright and blessing of his brother through deception. Jacob's mother and father, therefore, sent him away to his uncle's house to help him find a wife, but really it was to spare him from his brother's fury. And on his journey last week in Genesis 28, we saw how God had met with him, revealing himself to Jacob at Bethel. And God had confirmed the covenant that he had made with Abraham and with Isaac, now with Jacob. God had promised that he would be with him wherever he goes and that he will bring him back safely to the land of promise. And as God speaks this to Jacob in Genesis 28, he is giving him what we call grace, unconditional favor. It is apart from anything that Jacob says or does. And we saw last week how Jacob, in his immature new faith, responded to, of all things, the grace of God. He responds to the grace of God by putting conditions on God's unconditional favor. It's proof positive he is very young in his understanding of who God is and God's ways. We learn from Isaiah 55. God told Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Jacob doesn't yet understand all that God is doing and all that God will do to grow him beyond his deceptive character into the great man of God we know as Isaac, or as uh, Israel. And so today we're going to see three things in our text as we break this section down. We're not going to do the entire chapter. We're going to reserve the last few verses 31 to the end for next Sunday. But we're going to see in verses 1 through 12 the well, the well where Jacob will meet Rachel. We're going to see in verses 13 through 20 the work, the work he's willing to do for her hand in marriage. And finally, in verses 21 through 30, we'll see the wedding. And as we read this chapter, it is in many ways a beautiful love story between a man and a girl and her deceptive father. It's a man who's willing to undergo intense physical labor for years and years and years to win his wife, and yet because he loves her, those years are only like a few hours. But don't be mistaken, this is more than a love story. It's also a story where God is orchestrating his plan and purposes through circumstances that otherwise seem random or ridiculous. But in the end, just like in your life and my life, it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. This morning in chapter 29, we're going to see the evidences of God's grace and God's discipline in Jacob's life. And my prayer is that we too 
would see our own need to thank God for his grace and for his discipline. That you and I would understand that we often misinterpret God's discipline instead of, we don't see it as discipline, we see it instead as punishment. You and I can often myopically zoom in and just focus on our circumstances, and in the midst of that, we miss the grace of God through it all. You and I can often think that our life is just a series of random events that happen to us rather than maturing and resting in the truth that God is sovereignly at work for our good in both the big and the small things. You and I need to learn today to trust in his perfect timing to bring about his purposes in the world and in our lives, even, yes, through people who malign and mistreat us. And ultimately, we need to learn today how to express gratitude to God, not only for his grace, but also for his discipline. Later, when we conclude the sermon, we'll receive communion together, which is always a glorious time as we remind ourselves of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And it's always a sweet time of reflection and community with Christ. So let's begin by looking at the first section here, the well, verse one. Verse one says, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now, as we learned last week, Jacob has departed from Beersheba. He's made the long trek northward to Padan Aram. And I just need to clarify something uh, that I misspoke last week. Someone brought this to my attention this uh, middle of this week. I said last week in the sermon, maybe you remember this, that Jacob traveled 3,000 miles. Remember I said it was the equivalent of the United States. And I just have to say that was, that was not accurate. The source that I used for that data was incorrect. So here's what happened. I actually typed in, I mistakenly inputted the distance from Beersheba to Haran, and that was correct, 3,000 miles, except it's Haran, India. <laughs> so in case any of you want that bit of Bible trivia, there you go. That, that's, you're welcome for that. So uh, accurately, Jacob's voyage was more like around 450 to 650 miles. It's still a long, a long trek one way. It would have taken many days for him to, to make this journey, and it's definitely a long, long way from home. But now after Bethel, Jacob could take every step into the unknown, into this place where he had not yet come. He could take each step with a calm and quieted assurance that God is now with him. He's not alone. God Almighty, El Shaddai, has promised to be with him every step of the way. Verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now, we've talked about wells recently. Wells were very uh, important. They were very expensive. And they were critical in this part of the world for sustaining life. And so it's actually not too difficult to understand what's happening here. These wells, if left unopened, were dangerous for animals or children to fall into. And so what they would do is they would, they would roll these large stones over the mouth of the well to prevent any unfortunate accidents from happening. Now, because the well would have been large, the stone had to be large. Therefore, it's massive and heavy. And so it would require not just one or two men, but a handful of shepherds to work together to use their strength to push and roll the stone away from the well. And the flocks are typically watered twice a day. And 
Watering a, an entire flock of sheep, let alone multiple flocks, would have taken lots of time and lots of labor. And so Jacob approaches, he sees three flocks at the moment gathered, and there would arguably be a, a large handful of shepherds with them. And so he asks them in verse 4, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. If you're taking note, this is indication number one of God's providential guidance. You see, of all the wells that he stops at, Jacob arrives at one where the shepherds are from a place that he is seeking to go. So this story here in chapter 29 should give us flashbacks to Abraham's servant in Genesis 24. It should give us flashbacks to Rebekah. Even if the text is less explicit here about this all being God's direction, we really get a glimpse of that in chapter 24. And it's implied here, but it's not as explicit. But this is the first indication. He arrives at all, of all wells at the one where the men are from, the same area he's heading to. Verse 5, he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. This is the second indication of God's providential guidance. Not only are they from Haran, they know Laban. Jacob's journey is now complete. But it gets better, verse 6. He said to them, is it well with him? And, and that's an important question. Because what would Jacob do if they said, well, no, it's not well with him. Laban and his entire household are deceased. That would have changed everything. But see, their answer gives us the third indication of God's providential guidance. They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. This here is God's perfect providential timing. It's not just Laban who's coming. That would have been great. Nor is it one of Laban's servants. That would have been helpful. No, it's Laban's daughter. Jacob is, remember, on a marriage mission and he hasn't even gotten into town yet, and here is eligible bachelorette number one. <laughs> Verse seven, this is Jacob. He says, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. Seems a little forward for a stranger, doesn't it? He's giving them direction at their well. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well then we water the sheep. Now, you don't need a Bible degree to know why Jacob is quick to run the shepherds off. Why? Because he wants some alone time with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Now, it tells us in the next uh, section that she is a shepherdess. And so while these shepherds are conversing, they're explaining to him, listen, we, we can't we can't just like start watering them. We have to wait till everyone's here because this stone is very heavy. So we have, to, we have a little bit of waiting to do. Um, but as they converse, Rachel walks up and then Jacob decides to do what typically required, again, about a half a dozen or more men to do. And what he does is he gets up in this great act of almost superhuman strength and personally, by himself, individually, rolls the stone away. Now, certainly none of us when we were young men, ever tried to impress a girl we were interested in. Certainly none of us can relate to that at all. But the text tells us that he then watered her flock. And verse 11 says, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. We go from this superhuman strength uh, feat to an ugly cry. 
Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, her aunt, and she ran and told her father. Now, when we read verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel. At, at this point in this verse, the progressive church loses their mind and they read into this verse some sort of sexual uh, assault. Uh, Jacob is committing battery by going up and, and kissing her. He's assaulting her. But there's no indication that that's happening with this kiss. Is it forward? Yes, absolutely. But note with me that he's weeping loudly in front of the other shepherds that just watched him move the massive wellstone. And then he's recounting to her just the beauty of God's providence. Hey, I'm not just some random guy coming to kiss you. There's something here. God has led me to you. Now, from Rachel's standpoint, this would have been (laughs) at least surprising You come to the well, and then there's this very strong stranger single-handedly rolling the stone away, and then he comes and greets you with a kiss, and then begins to recount who he actually is. She, hearing this news, would have been overwhelmed with excitement. Certainly, she understood and heard the story that Laban would have recounted to her about his sister, her aunt, how God had led Abraham's servant all the way from Beersheba to come and that they met at the exact right place at the exact right time, and how Rebecca had gone off to marry this wealthy, distant relative. And as she's hearing this story, how it's unfolding in her own life, she must be thinking it's happening in the same way. I mean, on the screen, after all, there's a lot of similarities between chapter 24 and 29 with Rebecca, with Rachel. We see with both of them, there's a distant relative of Abraham's family. They're met by a stranger while coming to a well. Animals are then watered by that stranger. The stranger reveals that he is connected to your family. And then the stranger responds dramatically. But there is one big difference between Isaac and Jacob. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But Rachel's response to these things is to run and to tell her father out of excitement. So that means she's not at all offended by Jacob's advances. Rather, she's smitten by them. Now, there's a lot of similarities between this and chapter 24, but there is one big difference, and I want us to look at the section, second section to see it. So notice the work in verses 13 through 20. It says, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone? and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Now remember, the first time we met Laban was, again, back in Genesis 24. He was much younger then, and we got an early glimpse at what we could expect from Laban. On the screen, verses 28 through 30 of Genesis 24 say, Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Sound similar? That's Rebecca. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Sound familiar? As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Very similar to what we read here in Genesis 29, except something's missing. Does anyone know what it is? There's something missing, and it's the rings. It's the bracelets. You see, initially, Laban saw these and we got a glimpse into his character. He's a man of greed. 
And Laban coming now in Genesis 29 to Jacob at the well may be expecting this same sort of reception, some sort of dowry or bride price, some sort of wealth that will be bestowed from the stranger to his household. But see, there's a problem, isn't there? Jacob has fled from his wealthy family. Jacob has not traveled with anything of great value. Remember last week when we looked at his dream at Bethel, he didn't even have bedding. He laid his head on a rock of all things. And so Jacob is now going to have to find other means to produce a dowry. Verse 15 says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages shall be. David Gusick puts this into perspective. He says, quote, This might sound like a nice offer, but really Laban let Jacob know if he wanted to remain among them, he must stay as a hired servant. Jacob was the son of a man of tremendous wealth. Certainly he was not lazy, but he wasn't used to hard work. Servants did the hard work back home. Now Jacob was the servant. And I like what David Gusick says about this. He says, you never know what kind of servant you are until others treat you like one, end quote. You see, it's believed by many that shepherding peoples would allow a stranger to come into their home. They would practice hospitality for three days. And on the fourth day, the stranger was expected to give his name and then to depart. However, if he decides to stay past the fourth day, it was expected that he would do some sort of agreed upon work for the household. How long has Jacob stayed in our text? He stayed for a month. It's expected that he would be employed by Laban. And so what's it going to be, Jacob? You can't go home and secure riches to bring back because you'll be killed by your brother. You didn't bring riches with you, so you thus have no wealth to offer for this woman. What does that mean? It means you're going to have to become a hired hand. Now, it's at this point we learn that Rachel is not an only child. She's not even the oldest. Look at verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. If you're taking note, Rachel's name means you or purity, and Leah's name means weary. So if there's any moms here today named Leah, go home after service and take a little nap. We read in verse 17 a very controversial phrase. It says that Leah's eyes, quote, were weak. And all sorts of commentators try to fill in the lines. What does that mean, that Leah's eyes are weak? They love to weigh in what that might mean. Here's literally what many different, I don't have the source, but many different commentaries said this. One commentary said, her eyes are weak means she was homely. She was not very attractive. Another said she had soft blue eyes. Another, and that's not even in the Hebrew, but okay, she had blue eyes. She had lovely eyes, or she had dull eyes compared to Rachel's sparkle in her eye. Or some believe that this means she had poor eyesight. The one that confused me the most was that she was cross-eyed. <laughs> the key to Leah had weak eyes is in context. We look at contextual clues. Verse 17 compares Leah with Rachel. So that's the context. It says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I believe Moses is stating the contrast between these two women. In fact, the Christian Standard Bible 
has for verse 17. Leah had ordinary eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Leah's name doesn't just mean weary, it also can mean delicate. And so I believe some have suggested that Leah had one striking feature, and that was her eyes. Her eyes were delicate. Whereas Rachel had many beautiful traits that stood out. Now, either way, the idea here is that both of these women are available. But verse 18 tells us, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban, the father, that's the terms. I will serve seven years. Laban accepted it. He says, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And verse 20 is incredibly romantic. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Ladies, who would not want to hear from your husband-to-be that he would gladly work until the year 2030 for your hand in marriage? And in so doing, it would just feel like working till Wednesday of this week. You see, Jacob may have been physically attracted to Rachel, yes, because of her stunning beauty, but the text explicitly states that he deeply loved her. And this was happening in the ancient Near East in a time when marriages were arranged almost as kingdom alliances or as business transactions. And here we have a story that stands out of a young man who's willing to work to take his wife's hand in marriage. Why? Because he loves her. He's willing to wait for her. It's the first true love waits in human history. Yet, this is where everything falls apart. Look at this third section, the wedding. It's been seven years now. He's worked hard, laboriously out in the field for Laban. Verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. This is very straightforward, graphic description of consummating the marriage. Now, notice he says, give me my wife. Remember, we can't forget that a betrothed woman was considered a wife. Uh, We learn about that, of course, in the New Testament with Joseph and Mary. It says that they were betrothed one to another and that she was his wife. They were not yet married. Jacob here is waiting these seven years, and now it's time for their wedding. The wedding typically lasted seven days, and it was accompanied with great festivity, lots of feasting, and lots of joy and celebration. Verse 22 gives us a picture of that. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But then notice verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And we have a little sub-note here in parentheses, verse 24. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. We'll learn more about this Uh, dynamic next week as we open up Genesis, the end of 29 into chapter 30. But what's happening here at this wedding, this first night, Jacob may have been relaxed after the feasting, after the wine. Certainly the tent is dark. His bride is veiled. He has no clue the woman he is about to lay with, that he's joining together with, is not Rachel. It's Leah. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So Jacob, as he wakes up, the sunrise comes, the light goes into the tent, he rolls over and he realizes, as he looks into the eyes of what he thinks are Rachel, he looks into the delicate eyes of Leah. 
And so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And church, let's let the gravity of that last question just hang in the air for a minute. This is Jacob, remember? And Jacob is saying, why then have you deceived me? Let that sink in. Matthew Henry says, quote, it is easy to observe here how Jacob was paid in his own coin. He had cheated his own father when he pretended to be Esau, and now his father-in-law cheated him, end quote. Why then have you Jacobed me? Jacob, early on in life, was able to exchange the younger for the older, but here Laban reversed the trick. Laban has sinned not only against Jacob, he sinned against Leah, he sinned against Rachel. And he uses a cheap excuse for his deception. Verse 26, Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. He uses the excuse of culture. The question that I would have for, as, as Jacob would be, why didn't you tell me that? Why didn't you tell me that at the beginning? Why? Because he wanted to squeeze as much work out of Jacob as possible based on his greed. Jacob would not have wanted to marry Leah, the firstborn, so that wouldn't have worked, and Laban knew that. It's doubtful he would have worked an entire 14 years for Rachel, and so Laban reverses the deception and captures the heel catcher. Verse 27, this is Laban's offer. Complete the week of this one, so finish this wedding week, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Now, just a side note, nowhere here does it say it felt like a few days. Okay. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And then we have again a subnote. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, let's not miss this. We'll talk much more about this next week. But Jacob has now multiplied wives. God has never endorsed this nor approved this. And as a result, these two women will strenuously compete for their husband's affection. But even in the midst of that, God is still at work. And we'll see that next week in Genesis chapter 30. For us this morning in this text, as we seek to apply it, we can't help but observe that what God is after in Jacob's life here is growth. He's after progress, after learning and maturing and development. He wants to see Jacob go from this deceiver to a great man of faith. In our own lives, on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost, we call this work sanctification. The gracious work of God in conforming us into the image of Christ. You see, the Father loves us so dearly that his spirit is doing that work of growth in each one of us. So I think there's three ways we can apply this text through that lens, through the lens of growth. So if you're taking note, please jot these down. First, as we grow in our faith, number one, we react to God's guidance with deference. Now, we didn't say it earlier, but if you look back up in verse one, in the Hebrew, in verse one, when it says, then Jacob went on his journey 
The way that that's constructed in the Hebrew reads more like this, literally. Then Jacob picked up his feet. He's picking up his feet from Bethel. Remember, he fled Esau to a far-off country, and because God had revealed himself and said, I'm with you, now Jacob, the weight of his journey is now lifted as he lifts up his feet. And so Jacob could say from Bethel on, you know what? God is with me, and therefore nothing just happens. I mean, you and I could be tempted to read this and say, well, I don't know. Jacob just happened to come to a well where shepherds knew Laban. And he just happened to be there at the exact right time that Laban's daughter showed up. She just happened to be the love of his life right at the exact place at the exact right time to meet her future husband. But you and I know better. We know none of this is accidental or aimless. We know God is going to be faithful to guide and direct his people in the scriptures. And will God not do the same for you and for me? Will he not be faithful and sovereign to guide and direct us? You see, the Lord has led each one of us this morning in so many gracious ways. We don't have time this morning for each one of you, each one of us to just take a few months and recount all of the ways in our life thus far that God has been faithful. In fact, I think we're going to need eternity to really unpack the people of God who express, as Ephesians 2 say, the the riches of his grace expressed to us by his kindness. You see, God is guiding us. And the question is, as we're growing, as he's trying to produce sanctification in us, here's the question. Do we submit to that guidance, that leading, or do we, like Paul, kick against the goats? Do we try, this is so sad, in our petty strength to defy the sovereign God? You see, when we're immature, we do those things. We, we reel away from God's providence. But when we are growing, we're acknowledging, no, God is at work. I see his hand in this, and so I'm going to submit to it. So we react to God's guidance with deference. Number two, if you're taking note, We rest in God's love when disciplined. It is easy for us to read this chapter and think, ha, 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 Jacob got what he deserved. Karma's going to get you. In fact, I just want to encourage you, if you work uh, with unbelievers and maybe someone gets fired and and, uh, in the break room, they say, oh, karma got him. I just want to encourage you, like the scriptures are clear. We do reap what we sow, Galatians 6, 7. But there's no such thing as karma. I just want to be clear about that. If you and I get what we deserved, what do we deserve? The wrath of God. We deserve the judgment of God in hell. And so praise God that God doesn't exact our sins based on what we deserve. That's, that's, if you want to play karma all the way out or justice all the way out, we all deserve the wrath of God. No, we have to trust that God is a God of justice and of mercy. He's a God of grace and goodness. And so we may get tempted to read this story about Jacob and silently cheer that he got what he deserved. But we know better, don't we? Romans chapter 9 and elsewhere teach us God loved Jacob. Thus, what happens to him here is not poetic justice. It's not punishment. It's divine discipline. You and I need to know the difference between punishment and loving discipline. The writer of Hebrews, quoting Proverbs 3.11, says in Hebrews 12.6, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord 
disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is not celebrating with the angels in heaven as this scene unfolds, saying, gotcha, Jacob, as if he's punishing him. No, God's discipline is his loving fatherly chastening in order to correct disobedience as well as to teach. I love what Joel Beakey said in an exceptional article on Ligonier.org called The Discipline of God. Here's what he says, quote, What godly father allows his child to persevere in disobedience? The father's chastening is indispensable to our relationship with him. When the father adopts us into his family, showering us with love, he treats us as true sons, fatherly discipline included. Determined to have holy children, God disciplines us privately through providences and publicly through church discipline, end quote. You see, as we grow in times of discipline, we find ourselves resting in the truth that yes, this discipline hurts. Yes, it's painful. And yes, it's pr- yet in the midst of that, it's producing in me the fruit of righteousness. Why? Because I'm his child. I am loved by him. I'm being made holy through this. When we're immature, when we're not growing, what do we do? We're quick to believe what is untrue. And that is, oh, I'm suffering, therefore God is rejecting me. Therefore, I am illegitimate. And I just want to encourage us. It's not the punishment of God. It's the discipline of a loving father. So don't despise it. Don't misinterpret it as hatred. If he loves those whom he disciplines and you're being disciplined, then take heart, you're beloved of the Father. Thirdly, to apply this text, we recognize God's grace in our difficulties. Jacob may not have understood this here, but God's grace is completely covering him throughout chapter 29. Yes, he may have loved Rachel, but Leah will turn out to be a wonderful gift from God. Now, I have a minority view It's not a popular prevailing view, but I agree with what John MacArthur believes about this, that when Jacob woke up that morning and looked over and realized that he had been duped, that he was now married to Leah, I believe he should have been obedient to God's pattern of marriage rather than seeking to be emotionally satisfied. I believe that by marrying uh, marrying Rachel, Jacob sinned. Just think about this. Consider this about Leah. Leah and her handmaid are going to have at least twice the number of children compared to Rachel and her handmaid. She was the firstborn, and in a sense, she did receive the double portion that the firstborn receives. Not only that, but Rachel, the younger sister, will die early. She dies many years before Leah. And she is buried, Rachel is buried outside of Bethlehem. We read about that in Genesis 35, 19. When Leah dies many years later, it is Leah who is buried with Jacob in the cave of Machpelah, not Rachel. Additionally, Leah becomes the mother of Levi, the tribe of the priesthood. So every single priest who stood in the temple before God, mediating on behalf of God's people, could all trace their lineage back to Leah. But best of all, Leah is also the mother of Judah, the heir through whom the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, would come. 
Bob Deffenbaugh says, Leah was not a blight to Jacob. She was a blessing. This is the grace of God in Jacob's life. He missed it. Not only that, but what Jacob may see here as a 14-year delay may actually be the grace of God keeping him away from home and therefore away from Esau. You see, over the years, Esau's anger, initially seeking revenge and murder, will begin to fade and will morph into loss as he misses the brother he loves. We'll read about that later. If Jacob would walk into the scene, meet Rachel, leave with her that night, come back home, it's very possible and plausible that he would have been murdered by Esau. You see, you and I in our difficulty, we often miss the grace of God. We often only see the business end of the difficulty without recognizing, no, God's grace is over and through and within all of this situation. The question is, when's the last time in your suffering, in your difficulty, you acknowledged and thanked God for his grace in the midst of it? As we approach the communion table this morning, we remind ourselves of the depths that our gracious God went to in securing our salvation. We look at Jacob and we also see a picture of Christ. It's a contrasted picture. Jacob here acquiesces to the Father's wishes. And in the same way, in a greater way, our Lord submitted himself to the Father, became obedient even to death on a cross. Our Lord Jesus labored not under the heat of a midday sun, but under the just law of God, fulfilling it to the letter. Our Messiah's work was not seven years of sweat for a bride, but it was an agonizing turmoil, facing the wrath of Almighty God as he perspired drops of blood. Christ Jesus endured much more than the drudgery of a field. He suffered the torment of a criminal's cross, and all of this was to pay the bride price, to win the girl, to satisfy the Father. Tis the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame, bore the wrath, and we, we stand forgiven at the cross. All of this was secured for us by the grace of our dear Savior. Amen? Amen. So this morning as we approach the communion table in just a moment, our ushers are going to come as we sing and we're going to distribute these trays. In the tray, there's two cups. You just pull out a set on the top, there are, uh, there's juice, and on the bottom, there's bread. And we just ask you to take those out and hold on to those for a moment. We'll sing and reflect on these lyrics that adorn for us the glory and the depth of the power of the cross. So I encourage you to take this time to dedicate your life to the Lord. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, I want to ask you politely to abstain from what we're about to do. As the trays go by, just allow them to pass by. Why? Because this is not some ceremonial religious act that you do to merit favor with God. Essentially, that's blasphemy. What Christ has done is he has done the work from first to last. And what we do is we are glad recipients of his finished work. We take this bread and this cup as an overflow of gratitude to what Christ has done. That we only have merit because of his merit. We only have worth because of his worth. We only have forgiveness because he paid the price. So this morning, as we as a family come to the Lord's table, let's remind ourselves of the gospel of his glorious grace, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Let's bow our heads together 
and then we'll sing and we'll take the cup and the bread together. Father, we thank you for sending your dear son, the son that you love. You did not spare him, but gave him up for us all. Father, we thank you that you did not withhold your wrath, but you poured out the cup of fury and Jesus, our Lord, drank it to the dregs. We thank you that there is no more judgment reserved for us for sin because it's been paid for in full by Christ who on the cross declares it is finished. We thank you, Jesus, that you bore the wrath and you obeyed the law of God to the letter. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us until the day of redemption, for making us alive, for reminding us of all that Jesus taught, for helping conform us, sanctifying us into the image of the Son. And we ask, Lord, for us who are suffering, who are going through trials, that we would remember the grace of God, that we would remember Jesus Christ. As we come to the table this morning as a family, we do so with gratitude, with sobriety, examining ourselves, knowing that we're not worthy, but we put worth into the bread and cup and we put all of the worth into the dear Savior who took our place. Lord, as we come this morning, we come so with contrition, with humility. We tremble before you and your word. And Lord, if there are some among us who, not, who do not yet believe, would you call them to repent and to believe, to turn from their sin, to reckon the old man dead, to fall upon Christ and his mercies and to be a recipient, not just of common grace, but of your saving grace, that they would not yet face just the discipline of God, but one day the punishment of God. We pray that you'd be at work in saving the unsaved today among us. Draw all of us closer to thee, we pray. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.